word of truth. So very clearly from the scriptures directly we see in your notes, we must study the Bible to be approved of God. Now I do want you to notice it does not say we must study the Bible to be saved. It doesn't say that. For grace you're saved, right, by faith. It's a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. Not of works, right? You get that. So the whole idea is this is not about self. This is about being approved as a steward of the things God has given to us as Christians in our lives. And so it says that we are to study the Bible. And if we, are, if we do that properly, we will stand approved at that day when the Lord comes to call us into account. And if you're not approved, the opposite of approved, biblically, is ashamed. It's not lost and going to hell. But the opposite of approved is to be ashamed. Can you imagine? You stand before the Lord in judgment, and either you will come out approved, or you will come out ashamed. And so, listen, God has given us just amazing and precious gifts. He has given us his holy word, And he has given us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, the author of the Holy Word, to give us the proper interpretation thereof directly from the pages of the Holy Word. Can't you imagine? Of course, we are accountable, friends, for these gifts that have been given to us. Now, I do want to take just a second and point out to you that that word, study, 2 Timothy 2.15, appears in only one English Bible on the planet, and it's a King James Bible. Now, we're not here to talk about this subject today, but you need to be aware of the fact that there is no other Bible on the market that uses the word that... There's no other Bible on the market that explicitly says, study the Bible, except your old King James Bible. That ought to be interesting to you. So if you have a new King James or a new American Standard, it'll say... Be diligent to present yourself. Or if you have an ESV or an NIV or an NRSV, it'll say, do your best to present yourself. Okay, a little weak, not bad, just not specific. The New Living Translation, work hard so that you can present yourself. Okay, work hard doing what? Oh, study. Oh, yeah. Okay, I get it. So how are we to be approved? Well, it says how to do that by rightly dividing the word of truth. And literally, rightly dividing literally means to cut straight. Cut straight. It would be the illustration of a tailor making clothing. Have you ever seen how people make clothing from a... a, a yard of cloth and and they have to lay the pattern out and they have to cut precisely on the place where they need to cut so that each and every individual piece when joined together comes together to make the garment fit properly. That's literally the illustration God's trying to give us. You could see also for reference Ephesians 2.21 talking about the body of Christ and referring it like a building and in Ephesians 2.21 where it says that the body is fitly framed together and then compare over in Ephesians 4 and verse 16 where it says now that you've been fitly framed now let's make sure it's fitly joined together so every piece cut to the perfect size every piece joined in the right way so that the building stands strong 
That's exactly the illustration that we're trying to get when we understand how to understand how our whole Bible fits together properly. You must rightly divide. Now, again, just for your study, this is Bible study week, rightly dividing the word of truth will appear only in a King James Bible. So if you're looking at other versions of the Bible, again, it'll say, for example, in an ESV, rightly handling. We're going to see why it's important that the word divide is in there in a minute. New American Standard, accurately handling. New International Version, correctly handles. New uh, Revised Standard Version, rightly explaining. New Living, correctly explains. Sometimes versions will use correctly teaching, teaching accurately. Well, wait a minute. That's an entirely different emphasis. Because now we're not talking about what we do to extract from the Scripture. Now we're talking about making sure we talk to others the right way. Wait, uh, so I'm going to do my very best to make sure that I teach accurately. Well, that's entirely different than study to rightly divide. You see that? That's important. God says rightly divide. Therefore, we can make some conclusions, and these are in your notes. First off, that means there's divisions. I, I know I told you this was meaty. It's not really meaty yet. This is easy. <laughs> Rightly divide means there are divisions. Amen? We, is everybody, who's disagreeing with that? Okay, so what else can we conclude? If there's divisions, if it says rightly divide, that means some may get them wrong. If it says rightly divide, well... God's warning you, don't wrongly divide, right? So that's, that's pretty simple. That's dispensationalism in a nutshell. That's the proper hermeneutic. It's getting the divisions in the right places. So let's define a dispensation. In your notes, it is a stewardship which changes throughout history as defined by the Bible, of course. Not defined by historians, not defined by something else. The Bible will define for us this change, ever-changing stewardship. Think in your mind in administration. So we're in a presidential election year. Just, just picture in your mind a presidential, and every president has his own administration. It's a stewardship entrusted to him by the people of this country. Don't let your mind go politically. Just, just hang on with me. Every president, when he is sworn into office, he has his administration. And he has his system of doing things and circumstances to deal with that are unique and different from the president before him. And that's just kind of the idea I want you to understand. Listen, let me just tell you something, guys. Everybody believes this. Everybody. Even the people who say they don't believe this believe this. You say, well, that's crazy. You're just, you're just arrogant. Well, that may be true, but I'm also right in this case. <laughs> How do I prove that? Well, have you ever noticed in your Bible that page that divides Old Testament and New Testament? 
Okay, well, look, everybody knows that there's a division between the Old and the New Testament. Everybody agrees that there is a stewardship or an administration of what God was doing with his people in the Old Testament that was applicable literally for them at that time and is no longer applicable literally for us in the applying of the the slaughtering of the animals and doing the sacrifices and going to the temple and keeping the dietary laws and all the myriad of things that was a part of the old covenant. Everybody knows something's changed. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new administration. And so they realize that. Look, everybody's a dispensationalist at some level. So that's what we're talking about. And, and ultimately, we're going to see that the question is really not, are there divisions? The question is, how many divisions are there? And that's what this week is all about. I I hope you'll be here for all of it. But please know this. As we reveal God's system, this system of interpretation of the Bible, of getting the divisions in the right place, is the only system of interpretation that allows you, Christian believer, to believe every single word written in this book as it's given without adding to it, without taking away from it, without resting the context, without changing what it says. Because if you don't see divisions in the Bible, then I will show you, in your mind, contradictions in the Bible. Because there are things in the Bible that say one thing to one people at one time, and they say something very different to another people at another time. And either God has just contradicted himself, which of course he did not do, or we have crossed a dispensational boundary, and we are in a new stewardship, and some things have changed. It is the only way that it will allow you to just humbly submit to the final authority of God's word as it is given. Don't you think that's what God intends? Of course that's what he intends. If you reject this understanding, you'll find yourself in company with people like, for example, the Seventh-day Adventists, who still hold to the legalistic need to apply a Saturday Sabbath in their life every week. They will see that they must obey the Old Testament dietary laws of clean and unclean foods. Now, if you just say, I like taking Saturday off, well, good for you but it's not God's law for you today. You say, well, I don't want to eat shrimp. Okay, God bless you. But it's not against God's law for you to eat shrimp, right? That's what we're talking about. We could, look, we could roll this into scores of groups of people that make erroneous understanding, interpretation of the scripture, and you'll hear about them all week long. We could take fundamental Baptists that think that Men must not put on that which pertains to a woman. Women must not put on that. So it means that women have to wear, you know, skirts and can't wear britches. And, you know, God forbid if you have a tattoo or something. I mean, I get it. Because they're pulling stuff out of Deuteronomy. I get it. And they're cro- they haven't realized they've crossed a dispensational barrier. There's just endless opportunities for people to mess up. So we have to understand how to do this. Second point of your notes, the rules of a proper hermeneutic. So in our church, in our discipleship process, we have the course of study called Ministry Tools and Training. And Ministry Tools and Training, once you finish personal discipleship, you are eligible to sign up for this. I encourage every one of you to do this. 
the backbone course that is, I mean, it is just the pillar of everything we do is a little class called How to Study the Bible. And literally, how to study the Bible is the rules of a proper hermeneutic. That's what it is. Y'all, if you haven't taken that class, you have to take that class. But let me just tell you what goes on in an average Bible college. If you or your friends or your children or whoever goes to an average Bible college today, what they're going to get is what's called the, the grammatical historical method of Bible interpretation. And if you've read books or if you've listened to people, you'll often hear them refer to this grammatical historical method. And basically how it breaks down is this, is that you have to have a knowledge of the ancient languages in order to really know what God said. So you have to know ancient Hebrew and you have to know ancient Greek and Aramaic. In order to understand really what God intends, you have to be a master of original languages. By the way, God never one time ever in his word even hints that that's the case. Then you would analyze the grammatical construction in the original language, not in the language God gave you. Then you would determine the historical context, and that's fine. And so you'll hear people say things like, well, what was the intent of the author at the time of writing? And then when it's all said and done, they'll make a practical application for our lives today. And, and so you listen to somebody explain that, and you say, well, I, I mean, that sounds okay, doesn't it? Well, it might sound okay, but it's man's wisdom. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. Well, no, not necessarily, because you're not going to find one verse of Scripture that will defend that entire system. Yes, there's some historical context. Yes, there's some practical application. But this idea that you've got to go back to original languages and analyze the grammar in the original language to extract from it what God intends for you today is never one time ever defended in here which, by the way, the proponents of the most modern, easy-to-read versions of the Bible will send you to ancient languages, which I don't just, I don't get that. Hey, read the easy-to-read version, and oh, by the way, oh, oh let me just tell you, the re you know why they really do that? Because what they really want to do is say, just come to me. I'll tell you what God said. Just, just rest your sweet little heart. I'll take care of this for you. Okay, high priest, thank you, sir. It's dangerous, man. It's dangerous. It's man's wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20. What does God say about that? For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? There's no biblical defense for a historical, grammatical system of interpretation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul's going to communicate God's word in spirit and in power. Why? Because he didn't follow man's wisdom in order to do it. So what do we do? Instead, we teach a system as defined explicitly by God in the Bible, which includes, among other things, three simultaneous applications. The three simultaneous applications, many of you are aware, will be historical, doctrinal, and practical. The historical application, although there's just tons of places you could go, I picked my favorite verse in the whole Bible for this subject. It's John 14, 2. And John is dealing with, uh, it's, Jesus is dealing with his, his uh, apostles in John 14. And he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. You know the verse. Then the next phrase, you gotta love. If it were not so, 
I'd have told you so. In other words, God is saying, look, guys, seriously, don't get all twisted about does this mean that, does that mean this, and I think sometimes this means that, but it doesn't say that, but it means, forget it. Jesus said, man, you know, if it was going to mean something different, I'd have said something different. I said what I meant, and I mean what I say. I love that. Look, when God wrote the Bible, it is, by the way, an accurate representation of history. If your high school and college history books don't agree with it, well, you know, sorry. The Bible's right. And so the historical application without question is true. You need to understand what was going on at the time of writing, and God tells you exactly what he meant. But then the other two, doctrinal and practical, 2 Timothy 2, right? 3, 16, 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for, first and foremost, say it, doctrine. It's profitable for doctrine. And then it's profitable for reproof, right? Correction, instruction, and righteousness. That's very practical. So you have doctrine and you have practice. So you have history, you have doctrine, you have practice. There's always three, and there's three that are simultaneous. Why are those things all given? They're given so the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Man, these are things that apply. Look, past, present, and future. History, practical, doctrinal. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse number 9. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there's no new thing under the sun. God is making a connection, past, present, future, simultaneous. They're all included. Ecclesiastes 3, 14 and 15. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. Do you see how they're all connected? Another thing that you need to understand in the proper hermeneutic is three ethnic divisions. Again, many of you are already familiar with that. There's three people groups. You have the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. And you think, well, okay, okay, whatever. Well, think about it for a second. There's three and there's only three. There can't be two. There can't be four. It's three. It has to be three. There's Jews. We know who they are. The Hebrews. We get that. Then there's Gentiles. How do you define Gentiles? Everybody else. <laughs> well, if it's the Jews and everybody else, isn't that all? No, of course not. Because when you are in Christ, it says you are a new creature. You are now the church. You are a son of God. That which is gone, right? That's the old thing. It's passed away. You're brand new. You're no longer Jew or Greek, it says in Galatians chapter 3. You're a child of God. It is a new creation. So there's three, and you've got to get them right. How do you know that? Well, the Bible defines it, of course. 1 Corinthians 10, 32, give none offense. In other words, don't offend anybody. Let me include everybody. Neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Paul said the same thing virtually back in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23. For the Jews require a sign. So you got all the groups out here that are emphasizing the signs and the wonders and the miraculous and the things and the healings and the tongues and all these signs and wonders. Uh, Jews. <laughs> the Greeks, what about them? They seek after wisdom. But we, church, preach Christ crucified. Amen? 
There's three. There's always three. And you've got to get, these are some right divisions. And all week long, what we're going to be doing is outlining the major dispensations or divisions throughout the Bible narrative, which will give you the structure to establish the proper context of every passage of the Bible. Let's look at our third point. The ramifications of a poor hermeneutic. The ramifications of a poor hermeneutic. So what's the danger of doing it wrong? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? You don't really understand what God says. So you interpret the scriptures erroneously. You think that God is saying something. But because you didn't interpret them properly, he's not actually saying that. He's actually saying something else. So it's not just that you receive the wrong information. It gets worse. You receive the wrong information thinking it's the right information. Why do Christians fight all the time? Why do they argue and debate and fight about what they believe? Why do they get so mad at each other? Well, because I have come to the firm conclusion that God in his word said this. The other guy says, I have come to the firm conclusion that God in his word said that. And we don't agree. And then it just gets ugly because we're all still flesh. And the devil's happy and the spirit of God is grieved. This is a serious deal. You have got to get the interpretation right so that you not only know what is right, but you have the complete assurance that God said it that way. And you can answer the certainty of the words of truth to those that may come and ask of you. Now, whether they roll with it and agree or not, that's their business. But you can firmly and authoritatively give an answer. I mean, there's endless examples of this in the scripture. Endless. I just thought of Jeremiah chapter 23, if you want to look in your own time at that, where the Lord is literally rebuking these false prophets who just before the captivity are prophesying a time of great peace. And God said, no, no peace. There is no peace. You, you, you need to go to captivity. It's my plan for you. You've already blown it. You're going to get a spanking. You're getting a timeout. 70-year timeout, you're going to come back. You better go. You better go easy or it's going to be rough on you. And a few guys like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were telling him the truth. And all these other guys were lying to him. And God said, they're speaking in my name, but I didn't give them that to say. And the Bible's just full, full of examples like that. Modern history is full of people like that. Turn on the Christian TV channels. So there's two primary dangers of a weak Bible interpretation that I want us to look at today. The first one is prophecy. I mean, this is maybe the king of kings in the, in the world of problems that people have. Prophecy. And prophecy is the thing that you lose when you don't see the three simultaneous applications. Because they will give you history and they will give you practice. What they don't give you is prophecy. They don't give you doctrine. That's what the Bible college method does for you. 
only the historical and the practical. But remember 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, first and foremost, doctrine. Doctrine is first. You have to know what is right before you can decide how you're applying it in your life. So what is the doctrinal application? Well, typically it's prophetic. The doctrinal application of all the scripture throughout typically will be prophetic. It will be pointing. It will be historically accurate. A story existed. The life of Joseph, okay, historically accurate of the events that happened in Egypt that many thousands of years ago. Prophetically pointing to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Arguably the greatest picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament is Joseph. And, and if you miss that, you miss Jesus th- painted beautifully throughout the entire Bible. That's important for God's revelation to man. It's the thing that gives, the, prof, the prophecy is the thing that gives us the full assurance that God's word is 100% accurate because God only is the one that can predict the future with 100% accuracy. He's the only one. He knows the end from the beginning. So in Revelation 19 and verse number 10, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. That means that the prophecy of the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament leading up to the time of Christ, the story of the Old Testament gives testimony after testimony after testimony of Jesus Christ coming. If you miss prophecy, if you miss the doctrinal application of the Bible, You miss Jesus. That's what happened to the Old Testament Jews. That's what happened to them when Jesus showed up. They didn't get it. They missed it. Only God can do that. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's prophecy. Isaiah 48, 5 and 6. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee. Lest thou shouldest say, mine idol hath done them, and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Thou hast heard, see all this, and will ye not declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. God is revealing to us through his word future things and you can know them because of the prophetic types and pictures all through the scripture. But you won't get that if you don't have the proper hermeneutic. You can't possibly get that. So I put this in your notes. One of the prophetic landmarks in the Bible is the nation of Israel. You can't miss that. Proverbs twenty two twenty eight. Remove not the ancient landmark, which thy fathers. Who are thy fathers? Oh, the fathers of the nation of Israel. That's who he's talking to. Which thy fathers have set. We're told not to remove the landmark. But people that re- reject dispensationalism, 
reject the return, the literal return of the nation of Israel as God's moving to set up the end times. They reject it. They reject Romans 11 and verse 25, which says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Let's stop there for a second. I mean, the Lord is pleading to us. Please, brethren, allow me to pretend like I know what he might have also said that he didn't say. You might be ignorant of a lot of things. (laughs) I added that. But don't be ignorant of this one. You, you really need to not miss this one. And because he loves us, he told us. It's, it's just that easy. Should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Um, that, that sounds like, okay, if I'm ignorant of the mystery, I'm wise in my own conceits, that's man's wisdom. Man's wisdom, developing a system of understanding what God said will lead to missing the mystery. And the mystery that he wants us to make sure we don't miss is that blindness in part has happened to Israel for this time of the church age. And that will end because it says, comma, until some time yet coming called the fullness of the Gentiles become in and it goes on in Romans 11 talking about how all Israel shall be saved and so if you hold to a different system of Bible interpretation they're going to hold to a system that thinks that the church replaces Israel on all counts they'll think that there's no significance whatsoever of the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1947-1948 They see no connection whatsoever with the fact that in 606 B.C., Israel lost their capital, they lost their throne, and about 20 years later, they lost their land. And then in 1947, 1948, they get their land back, and about 20 years later in 1967, they get their capital back in Jerusalem. They don't see that at all because they don't have the right system of Bible interpretation. That's that's what you lose when you don't see the three ethnic divisions. So in your notes I have, you know, there's a risk of ignoring the warning of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You know the promise given to Abraham? I'll bless those that bless thee is combined also with the warning and curse those that curse thee. And in thy seed all the families there should be blessed. Well, Abraham, you know, becomes Isaac who becomes Jacob who be- changes his name to Israel and has the sons that become the tribes that... So the lineage of Abraham is the nation of Israel and I will bless those that bless Israel, and I will curse those that curse Israel. Please take warning. So it's important what you think about the nation of Israel. It's important what your president thinks about the nation of Israel. It's important what you believe about that. I mean, it really matters. You've got to understand that the promise given to Abraham about blessing and cursing was unconditional. He did not say, I will do this as long as you're a good guy. No. He said, I will do this. And Israel did good and bad and good and bad and better and worse and worse and a little better and worse again. And, and God said, okay, now you're going in a timeout for a couple thousand years. I mean, you didn't get the 70-year one. 
It's going to be a little longer this time. But because of his great love and because he cannot lie and cannot break his word, he will bring her back and is now in the process of doing that. Which means, by the way, we are at the jumping off point. Your toes are hanging off the springboard and the church is about to end and the tribulation's coming. It's coming. But you don't get that without a dispensational view. You can't get that. Okay, the next danger of the weak interpretation is missions. It's missions. So I'm teaching a class in LFBI about missions and I'm calling it Proper Perspectives for Cross-Cultural Ministry. And I've chosen that title because I'm using the structure and contrasting what is used as the industry standard, if you will, of training missionaries from a place called the U.S. Center of World Missions in Pasadena, California. And they have a course that's called The Perspectives in the World Christian Movement. And in the, I've taken that course, and in the course and the stuff that they teach, they they have a very different view of how to understand the scriptures. And their influence, whether they directly or indirectly, they influence the training of most of today's missionaries in the world because it represents the common logic. At the end of the day, they're amillennial. And so they don't really see a literal physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they see that the job of the church in missions is to go and, oh, sure, preach the gospel, but man, you really need to bring about social reform. I mean, that's your job. We have to make this world a better place to live in. And, and they really do. And, and they think that that is what we are supposed to do. We usher in social reform. We should be involved in politics, they would say, because we have to make this world a better place. That all comes from a poor hermeneutic, every bit of it. A poor hermeneutic, in your notes, confuses the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of God and their roles throughout history. If you don't already know it, we don't have time to define them this morning, the kingdom of heaven is a literal, physical kingdom on earth. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. They are not the same. That should be easy to understand because heaven is not the same as God. They're spelled differently. They mean different things. Heaven is a place. The Bible says God is a spirit. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is a physical kingdom. You need to understand that. Why? The Old Testament is the story of the kingdom of heaven being established through a physical nation as they took names and kicked butt. Sorry. And they slaughtered nations and they had wars. Why? Because we are going to reign on the earth and God will use us. You turn the page of Jesus Christ and you come into the New Testament time. It is no longer about a physical kingdom for us, y'all. It is 100% kingdom of God. It is spiritual. It is within us. We are regenerated from within and we are to lead people to Christ to enter into the spiritual kingdom of God before Jesus Christ comes back in the millennium and judges all unbelievers and sets up the millennial kingdom, which will be ultimately the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God together. If you don't understand the Bible dispensationally, you can't understand that. I know for some of you, it's like we're drinking from a fire hose. You've got to just hang with me 
come back all week. It'll, the other guys are better at this. They'll, they'll make it clear. Y'all, this amillennial bring in the kingdom idea, that's the MO of the Roman Catholic Church. It's political power. And, and if you're in the LFBI class with me, the next Saturday when we meet, we're going to talk about New Testament history and missions and how the Roman Catholic version of missions, which is exalted in the U.S. Center for World Missions course, by the way, basically was just bringing in the kingdom and sending out these friars and these monks and ultimately the Jesuits to expand the kingdom of Rome. The Vatican is a state. It has embassies. It's all about spreading their political power. Without a dispensational view, without that proper, this is your notes again, without the proper dispensational view, you, you can't even do evangelism right. Because you don't understand that Jesus is literally bodily returning to this planet. You don't understand what time it is on God's clock. Which means you can't know what your job is supposed to be now. You don't know what God wants for you to do. Our job is not to usher in a kingdom. Our job is not to... Listen, these... It's not to go and build hospitals and start schools. And, and those are fine things. And they can be used as tools to facilitate the gospel. Don't misunderstand me. But our mission is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are like Green Berets on a seeking, you know, rescue mission behind enemy lines to get who we can and get them out before the napalm falls. That's our mission, church. Unless you don't interpret the Bible right then run for political office and, you know, good luck. Listen, this, this is a big honking deal. When you don't understand how to properly understand the scriptures yourself, you know what you're going to do? What most people do. You're going to subcontract all your Bible understanding to colleges and commentaries. That's what you're going to do. Commentaries written by colleges. Most all of which have left long ago a sound dispensational theology for some new, reformed, Calvinistic, covenant theology. If you don't even know what that means, come tomorrow morning. Your system of interpretation affects your understanding of church history. If you don't understand church history right, you've lost your bearings. You don't know where you come from. If you don't know where you come from, you also don't know where you're at. Well, if you don't know where you come from and you don't know where you're at, you know, go kid your grandmother. You don't know where you're going. You lose your bearings if you don't know church history. You can't understand these things unless you know where you're at on God's clock and his calendar. You know what else you lose? You don't understand if you don't have the proper interpretation. You don't understand manuscript evidence. And when you don't understand manuscript evidence, you lose your Bible. And when you lose your Bible, then you are in the fields of the fatherless. And that's what it says in Proverbs 23. Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless.
Because typical churches will say, you know what, any modern, easy-to-read version is equally as good as any other modern, easy-to-read version. You don't need to worry about it. Just come to me. I'll tell you what it's all about. You don't want to do that, friends. You don't want to live your life like that. You don't want to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that's the only story you've got to tell. Well, you know, I read so-and-so's commentary, and he said, and Jesus was like, I gave you this one. Oh, by the way, I gave you the author, too. Have you ever thought about reading a book, and you're like, I wonder what that means? If you happen to, like, know the author, you call him, hey, what did you mean when you wrote that? Oh, I meant that. Oh, that's, that's cool, thanks. You know you can do that with the Bible? And if you're not, well, I mean, what are you doing? I mean, you know, Facebook isn't that interesting. Okay, so this is a really important subject if you want to learn and understand your Bible, and I know that a lot of you do. So I hope you're planning to join us for the rest of the week for all these details. I mean, this is just going to be a lot of fun. But let me just wrap it up with this. Practically speaking, let me just ask you this. You might be a member of this church. You may be a member of a like-minded church. You may have heard me say the things that you know, make you feel good and make you feel like, yeah, man, go, boy. Let me ask you this. Thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> do you actually study it? Uh-oh. Do you actually study it? Or do you just read what people say about it? Do you ask people you trust who study it, what they think. I mean, look, honestly, I, I take my job real serious. I, I do my best not to lie to you. But, you know, you don't know me like my wife knows me. You know, I, I'm weird. So, I mean, you better study. I mean, you need to know what it says yourself. Because you know what's going to happen? The skies are going to part, and Jesus will be standing, and he will come down. And the trumpet will sound, and the shout, and the voice of the archangel, and we'll go up. And we're going to meet him together in the air. And we get all excited, and you get the goosebumps. You know what's going to happen when we meet him in the air? It's this little thing called the judgment seat of Christ. And you will stand, and you will give an account of your stewardship of the gifts that he gave you none the least of which, the Holy Bible, and how you let its historical, doctrinal affect your practice and how you lived it out in your life. That day is coming. How do you know that? Because the Bible says it's coming. And when it comes, you will be there if you know him as your Lord and Savior. And you will give an account. And you will either be approved or you will be ashamed that's why this matters this isn't just some heady study for bible geeks this matters to you you need to know this we love we put a lot of time and effort and expense into this conference to help you because we love you don't waste it take advantage of it let's pray together